Uh, my name's Emmett. Um, you're gonna hear my voice later on telling you I'm somebody else. That is a lie. This is fiction. Um, it is fiction about the satanic panic, which is why I wanted to give you a little heads up because in case you don't know, the satanic panic is a many-headed beast, but one of the ones that keeps coming back up is child abuse. Uh, While the majority of the allegations made in the court cases and texts that this podcast draws upon did not turn out to be remotely plausible, we're still talking about the concept of people doing bad things to little kids and the reality of people coercing little kids into forming false memories of trauma, which is also traumatic. Um... My goal in writing this podcast isn't to focus on lurid details, but to explore the relational fallout over several decades of a satanic ritual abuse case that I imagine taking place in a town much like my own. All that to say, if subjects like child abuse, police and psychiatric malpractice, scary Christianity, and family estrangement are triggering or just not something you want to spend time with right now, that is chill. Go enjoy another podcast, go have a snack, have a nap, take care of yourself. For the rest of y'all, welcome to the result of my pandemic obsession with collecting texts about fake Satan. Um, I don't have the counter space to knead bread and plants die when I look at them, so this has been my thing. Enjoy. Or something. Maybe it'll be your thing. Who knows? Episode 2, Family Business. Original release date, October 24th, 2015. Hello, and welcome to Believe Me Now a podcast about my experience as a child witness in the Spring Valley Ritual Abuse Ring, a case that is now considered part of the Satanic Panic. My name is Katrina Childers. I am a comedian, burrito delivery professional, and all-around 30-something burnout. Last week, I introduced you to some of my family, including my cousin Lou. Both Lou and their mother, my Aunt Annie, were accused of involvement in a satanic cult which was alleged to be ritually abusing children in our hometown. And although nothing happened to me, and Lou and Annie were two of my very favorite people in the whole wide world at age four, I was among the accusers. We'll get into that later, but in this context, it only matters because before we met up to record our first interview together, I had not spoken to Lou in almost three decades. It was an emotional first meeting, and I was surprised by how well we clicked after all these years, with just a few Twitter DMs exchanged first. But I was worried that it might be manipulative to turn our reunion into content without giving Lou a chance to consider. So, when I left you last week, it had been days since I heard from Lou, and I was beginning to assume the worst. That both this podcast and my renewed relationship with Lou were a no-go. And then, I got a text. Okay, so Lou, I just got a text from you, and I laughed for (laughs) five minutes straight. And then I called you, and I asked if we could record this call, because this podcast is turning me into a nightmare person already. 
Sure. And you said yes. Yeah, I've been a nightmare person for years, cuz. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you can reenact for our audience the text you just sent because I tried to le- read it out loud and I could not stop laughing. <laughs> <clears throat> Is the sound supposed to be bad? <laughs> Brutal. Brutal. I have been slain. R.I.P. Me. No slang intended. I love a distorted sound. Just wanted to check if you meant it. Yep. I am but a humble, fake, satanic cult survivor with a cellular telephone and a dream. No, the sound was not supposed to be that bad. And yet, how could it be else? Is this where we reveal where the text combo went next and why you actually called me? Yes, uh, because you are a goddamn saint. I'm a very self-interested saint. Okay, okay. So back up. After I recovered from the demonic laughter and the resulting pool of tears, I texted back, no, please help. Half expecting like a link to a mid-priced mic you recommended at best. And that would have been plenty generous. And yet you replied. Looking for a producer? At this point, I was still figuring the podcast was toast. Yeah, I'm good with sound, less good with communication. So, should we explain where we are now? We're in my basement, baby. We are. We're at your place in Hatterme, which was this really bright, sunny kitchen where I just met your wife, Vicky, and one of the kids. We're not saying the kids' names on the pod, right? Yeah, that's kind of a rule we have about the kids and the internet. We can just call them 7 and 10. Right. So I just met Vicky and Seven, and Vicky gave me some homegrown kombucha, and Seven gave me some sass. She's just very baffled by the idea that I could have a cousin I didn't talk to for more time than she can even conceptualize, and to be fair, yeah, seems neglectful. (laughs) My bad. Anyway, then you took me downstairs into the basement of your building, where you've turned your storage space into a little black soundproof chamber, which I dutifully followed you into, just to prove I'm no longer the slightest bit concerned about your satanic proclivities. Crossed your mind, though, eh? Uh, Okay, listen, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm incredibly good at thinking of the worst goddamn thing I could think of. But no, we aren't in a horror movie. No easy twist here. We're just... Sitting in a soundproof booth. Which you can now officially call the studio. Right, because you're my producer. A company of cousins. Exactly. Uh, Which is kind of an interesting angle for the story we're trying to tell. Because this is a small town story and family business is a big part of that. Right. My mom's daycare business, which she ran out of our grandparents' house where we lived at the time. But there's only so much we're going to say about that today. Right. Because my mom, not a big fan of this subject. Understandably. Right. And without saying too much, my mom and I always kind of had a rocky relationship entirely. Apart from what this podcast is about, she wasn't a satanic witch. She was just a regular, overwhelmed, single Catholic mom in the 80s. And I always thought, well... She's doing her best. And then when I was in middle school, she started a daycare. And it turned out her best was actually great. And what she'd been doing with me was something else. Oh, yikes. Something I've sort of realized as an adult is that we probably just weren't so well matched in terms of temperament. My mom is just 
an unbelievably fabulous person wore a full face of makeup at her daycare job in her own house every day. Fabulous. And I adored her when I was little and she adored me. And then I got a little older and she started to get frustrated with all the ways I wasn't like her. And then I got a little older again and she started to panic that maybe I would be like her in certain ways after all, and that wouldn't be good either. It was kind of like, oh no, she's ugly. Oh no, she's somehow ugly and slutty. Not that my mom was, you know. Right, right. And not that you're, you know, a she. That I'm not. Uh, okay, this might be kind of inappropriate to ask now, and you can edit this out. Uh-huh. I just feel like we haven't really talked about your mom yet. And she's not answering any of my attempts to reach out, not just for the podcast, but in a general family reunion sense. Oh God, uh, sorry, I just pictured a literal family reunion. <laughs> what a nightmare. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's there yet. Uh, no. But I was just wondering, like, your mom, what is her life like now? I won't say where she lives now on air. I, I did find that out, but I don't know. Does... Does she live with anybody? Does she... Well, what does she do? Like, is she she okay? Well, she's living what some people would call the dream. Totally off-grid. I don't think it was ever her dream. She married um, my stepdad. Won't say his name on air either. Who wrote to her when she was awaiting trial because he saw her on the news and he found her, quote, enchanting. Um, So her name isn't Annabelle Guillon anymore. If you're out there Googling Annabelle Guillons to harass them on Twitter, please stop. None of them are her. (laughs) They live way out in the sticks. I think that's fine to say. There are a lot of sticks all over this country and they're nowhere near Spring Valley. That was a big selling point for my mom when he popped the question. Um, She's had a lot of trouble getting work and she doesn't really like to get too close to people. I mean, she would like to, but she's really afraid, I guess, is the situation. For a while it was like, oh, the whatever, the fuss has died down. People aren't really buying that satanic crap anymore. Her name wasn't really fresh in the news. Her face is like, maybe vaguely familiar, but people Mm -hmm. don't really know why. Like, she could kind of blend in to the extent that my mom could ever blend (laughs) in. Um, not her strong suit. Uh, we've got that in common. Had a few good years there. Uh, and then the internet happened and r slash red hot Satanist happened, which I assume you've come across in your (laughs) Googling my mother adventures. Yep. And I bet the people most likely to stumble upon this podcast have too. But in case we have any non-degenerate listeners... What is the classiest way you can describe that? Uh, actually, I'm gonna let you take that one, if that's okay, because that's my mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Of course. Uh, so r slash red hot satanists is a subreddit Mm -hmm. where, um, people, um, express their 
enthusiasm, shall we say, for people who have been associated with Satan in the popular consciousness. And a lot of those people are real people, whether they're self-confessed Satanists, like, you know, your Levays, your Greaves, or your not-so-willing participants in the Satanic narrative. And there's <laughs> fan art, and there are specifically people or characters they're um, attracted to. So if you can imagine the genre of fan art. Please don't imagine while you're no. listening to this oh, podcast no. because that's my mom mm. and um, she's a senior citizen now and she really just wants to be left alone yeah. because when this community of weirdos came along and made her like a horny creepypasta meme... <laughs> These images are all tagged with her real name, and so that stuff starts coming up anytime you Google her, along with the original information from the case, and there are all these blogs and true crime YouTubers and stuff who start taking an interest in her and posting these what really happened speculation videos, because for whatever reason, like years after she was acquitted, the internet has adopted my mom as this iconic woman of mystery and mayhem, and my mom's not on the internet. Her friends are on Facebook or whatever, but they're not nosing around for homespun porn of this woman in their <laughs> book club, obviously. She's she's probably lost some jobs because of it, but she didn't really put that together until later. But then, this absolute prick oh. decides he's going to be the self-styled red-hot Satanist tour guide, and he makes up his little guidebook. A.K.A. he doxes people. Exactly. And he videotapes his own little cross-country adventure to all these sites, and some of it's above board. It's these visits to a Satan church, and he interviews a priestess about their whole deal, and it's, like, wholesome, cute, good for the Satanists, <laughs> whatever, but... Some of these other sites where he's essentially stalking people like my mom who aren't running a public religious institution, who aren't going to talk to anything resembling the press after what they went through, he's he's trespassing onto their property and staging these Blair Witch Project rip-off moments, and the last stop on his tour that he actually hits is... guess who's backyard? Your mom. And then he disappears for three months. And these armchair internet detective assholes start flocking to my stepdad's cabin looking for clues. And it's not like they can just go somewhere else. My stepdad is one of those guys who's like, I'll die before I leave. You know, like, you all see those guys on the news when they're trying to evacuate people before a natural disaster. The spokesperson for the foolhardy jackass community. Just him and his shotgun against the world. <laughs> Finally, I drive up there in a rental car to get my mom out. And we swap it out for another rental car as soon as we're out of town, so we won't be followed. And she stays with me for the longest three months of my adult oh. life. Until tour guide Dickface shows up again <laughs> because a literary agent blows up his spot for trying to sell a book about getting kidnapped by witches. And he's talking about how he'll wait until the book marketing campaign to come out of hiding. And it's like, motherfucker! My mom didn't get to choose to go into hiding. Yeah, I mean, I I remember sort of hearing about it on Twitter at the time, but I didn't I didn't want to look too closely, so I never really knew how close to home it was. Right. Well, that was a few years ago, mm. and that was the worst. That was 
almost as bad as the original accusations. Definitely made me realize how lucky I was because I went through a lot at the time and definitely everybody in Spring Valley knew the young offenders were me and my friends, but our names were kept out of the press. They couldn't photograph us and thank God it was 1987, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And I know it's like, uh, Lou, you're gonna do a whole podcast about it under your real name now. Yeah, are you changing your mind about that in real time? No, no. Um, but okay, I'll cop to the fact that probably part of my motivation for offering to produce this show is that it definitely feels better if we're putting this story out there, and I think we should, to have some level of control. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sitting here talking, knowing that I'm going to be able to choose what identifying details to bleep out of our conversation, yeah. if I think better of sharing them when I'm editing. Right, right. Okay, I guess I'm just wondering why your mom's reaction is, I don't want to talk about this at all, whereas yours is, I want to talk about it so I can control the narrative. I can't speak for my mom's choices. But I will say she's part of my decision-making process here because mm -hmm. just what I said, she didn't get to choose whether her name and her face would be everywhere. And at this point, I think most of the people engaging with her image online would describe themselves as fans of her. And setting aside the horny fan art, which is like, not to be approved, but that's gross. Um, that's such a gross yeah. thing to do to a real person you don't even know. There are so many <laughs> fictional characters to make porn of. My mom is real, and she would very much like to be excluded from that narrative. But now there's this whole other contingent that Caesar is this great symbol of maligned womanhood. And, like, I get it. If she's your Monica or your Brittany, who you're trying to rescue from the jaws of the late 20th century misogynist media hellscape as part of your witchy aesthetic, I see that happening and I can see why people think there's something noble and feministy about selling a prayer candle with my mom's mugshot on it for $40. True story, that's out there. Um, Ugh, I'm not trying God. to shame anybody who came to this show because they've got a Google alert for her name because... God knows the internet does weird things to all of our brains, but for one, you should know my mom doesn't want to be rescued by you, and two, my mom's not your feminist Jesus. She's not a feminist anything, and at the end of the day, setting aside everything that happened to her, she's like anybody else's conservative boomer parents, and I love her very much, but the literal icon people have made of her is a false one. And I think we can talk about the meaning of what happened to her, to all of us in the Spring Valley case, without lying about who anybody was or is. You know, I think mm. my personal experience of my mom has been that from the time I was little, she has taught me a lot, and plenty of that wasn't anything she believed in herself. She taught me to be wary of religion because she clung to it for security. It never provided her. She 
taught me to trust women to make their own choices because she was afraid of women being in control of themselves. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident about the choice to take part in this podcast because, kind of like you said in the first episode, my personal narrative has been connected to this case for 30 years, even if my name wasn't directly attached to it. Yeah. And I'd like that narrative to be fact-checked on the public record by credible sources. So, yeah, company of cousins. Right, right. And bringing us back to our theme for the episode, family business. And I think you've done a good job of explaining why we probably won't be hearing from your mom about her business, which was the home daycare where I spent just about every weekday from age three months to four years, along with about five other kids, and why that became one of the more well-known aspects of the Spring Valley accusations. Because ultimately, your mom was scapegoated as the high priestess of this supposed coven. Unless you're on Team Minty. Right. Or... Well, there are a few Team Pamela's out there. We'll have to talk about that in another episode. Um, Okay, but Miss Minty wasn't alive to stand trial. So your mom became the focal point of the investigation. But she was actually one of the last to be accused. Excepting yours truly. Right, aside from the young offenders. That should have been our band name. Might have saved (laughs) everybody some trouble, ironically. (laughs) Okay, yeah, but, but your mom wasn't even our family's first connection to the case. No, she wasn't. We were tied into this thing from all sides. Yeah. Okay, because my dad worked at the same law firm as the original defendant in the case, Chet Spring, and became his confidant and also acted as his lawyer in what was originally a custody case. Right. And if you're thinking, oh, Spring like Spring Valley, that's a funny coincidence. No. No, it is not. (laughs) Chet Spring was the youngest son of the fourth generation of the descendants of John Spring, who founded Spring Valley. Mm, Illegally, according to existing treaties with the Algonquin, which still stands. Fact. But the Springs have been emblazoning their name all over this place for 150-odd years by the time Chet brings shame to the family, as far as we can tell, through no fault of his own. Right. And... Unlike my mom, your dad actually did respond to our request for an interview. I mean, I think he was feeling a little left out after mom and Michael both got their featured moments in the first episode. (laughs) So, shall we roll the clip? Yeah, okay. Let's do it. Hi, Dad. Do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Roger Childers. I worked at Spring and Childers Associates in Spring Valley, Ontario from... 1969 to 2001. And how did you get that job? Well, the Spring family and the Childers family go way back. We've both been here from the beginning. And when we were kids, our cottages were right next to each other on the lake. And the middle Spring boy, Alan, he's about my age, and we were good friends. So when his dad learned I was interested in a career in the law, he set me up with an internship after school And I eventually worked my way up to partner. Okay, so nepotism. I was very blessed to have a good connection. Privileged? That's another word for it. Right. Okay, so in 1986, who were the associates at the firm? Well, it was right there in the name. 
It was Alan's father, John Spring. There's a long line of John Springs, but he was the senior living John Spring at the time. And his sons, John Jr., Al, and Chet, and myself. And did you ever feel like the odd one out with everybody else being related? Well, no, because as I say, we grew up together. They always treated me as family. I think if anything, Chet was always the odd one out since we were kids. So how much older are you than Chet? Not much, a few years, but he came to the firm long after I was there. He spent a while trying not to be a lawyer in his 20s, despite having gone to law school. The Spring family owned quite a few properties in town, still do, so he was managing those for a while. Not terribly well. Mm. His own mother fired him. I think, I think I can say this without offending. He told the story himself at cocktail parties. <laughs> that did always have a sense of humor about himself, at least. And was he any better at being a lawyer? He wasn't bad. As I said, it wasn't his passion. He cared about his clients. He would talk about other things he'd like to be doing as much as he'd talk about his work. Fair enough, I suppose. He mainly worked in real estate law. Whereas you? At the time, I was beginning to take on a fair number of family law cases. So which happened first? That Chet told you he was divorcing his wife or that he told you he was gay? Well, gosh, I think it was all at once. He asked if we could go to lunch. This was weeks before anything really happened, any of the things you're talking about. And it was unusual. Usually I'd eat lunch in my office and work right through. Or on Fridays, Al and I would go out to Sleepy's. That was our thing. But just as typically, the whole firm might do happy hour and wings every month or so. But I don't know that it had ever been just me and Chet, even in the office. So I'm sure I thought he must have something serious to discuss, whether or not he warned me. Well, yes, he must have said I could mark it as billable hours. We got in his car and he took me all the way to Temple Falls. <laughs> Which is what, like a whole 15 minute drive? Not so far, but far enough that looking back, I could see that he was worried about who might overhear us. Right. Well, and I guess you've already given away the big, what's the kid saying? The spoiler. <laughs> okay. So did he tell you in the car or at the restaurant? It started in the car, right outside the restaurant. We were stopped, but he still had his hands on the steering wheel, 10 and 2, staring straight ahead. And he said, Roger, you're the first to hear this, but I'm a homosexual and I'm leaving my wife. And you're a better lawyer than me, so I think I'll need you for this one. Okay, did he say homosexual or did he say gay? What's the difference? Well, it's just in everything I've read from the letter to Flora, right through the court transcripts, Chet always uses the word gay. Like even when the prosecution is using the word homosexual in questioning, Chet always describes himself as gay. You may be right. I do remember he had some idea that word would be less threatening somehow. 
I think that's probably why the word gay exists in that context, isn't it? Okay, sorry. So you're in the car. Chet tells you he's gay and he wants a divorce. And what then? Do you remember what you thought? Well, I guess I was sort of stunned. Not that I didn't believe it. As I said, Chet was always a little odd. I don't suppose it had occurred to me that oddness might have, you know, a particular meaning. Was he the first gay man you met? Well, that depends on how you count it. I'd known Chet since we were kids, so if you believe he was always that way, must have been the first one I knew. That would have been the 50s. We were so young. It was a whole foreign concept. I can't imagine how he would have known back then. Nobody knew what it was. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, well, the two of you might have had different 50s, Dad. Certainly different 60s and 70s. Anyway, I do remember at least hearing about them in college. You'd know they were around campus, even if you didn't know any personally. One guy was always leaving his phone number in the men's bathroom stalls, you know, as if it wasn't girls. And then guys would call expecting. So you'd hear stories. Okay, but stories isn't knowing somebody. It sounds like Chet was your first. If you have to put it like that, I did think as we were getting out of the car that I was about to sit at a table for two across from a self-confessed homosexual. That was certainly a first. Okay, so you were uncomfortable. I didn't want anybody to get the wrong impression. Least of all him. We were colleagues, after all. Yeah, but he was pretty clear that's why he asked you there, for legal help. I didn't know how things worked in that world, how they picked people up. No, listen, it's not even a matter of him being what he was. A man will use all kinds of false pretenses to get a girl alone if he likes her. I never liked that kind of game either. (laughs) Okay, true enough. Let the record show Roger Childers is a straight shooter. What was the restaurant like? Very nice. The Emperor's Table, upscale Chinese place, closed down a few years ago, sadly. And you talked about the case? We did. That set me at ease pretty quickly. I realized there was nothing flirtatious in his demeanor. (laughs) Oh, but how could he resist a graying 40-something married father of two? (laughs) But he was all business, even if the business at hand was an intimate nature. But of course, that was familiar ground to me. You hear the worst of people in divorce cases. And did it seem like a messy case to you? Not to hear him tell it that day. He actually spoke quite glowingly of Flora. That was peculiar. And he wanted her to have everything, more or less, which was lucky for her, since she came into the marriage without much of anything. He wanted her to keep the house, which wouldn't be so unusual, except that house had been a spring house from the beginning. And I figured somebody else in the family was likely to object if we didn't stipulate that it was to be handed down through Chet's kids. 
her place to dwell, not hers to sell. And did you talk about the kids at all? He was somewhat nervous about that. I didn't think too much of it. Fathers worry in custody cases, especially back then. He wanted them every weekend, at least. And of course, he hadn't told her anything yet, so he had no sense of how hard she'd make it. Did he say anything about how he thought she'd react? Not that I recall. I mean, he must have been nervous about that too. Married 15 years, devout Catholics, at the time, I mean. She switched churches soon after, and of course he... He was preparing as best he could, though. He had the plan already to set up his apartment first and tell her in a letter. Okay, so that was his idea, the letter. Yes. It didn't exactly impress me as a way to end a marriage, but it didn't strike me as a legal issue, so I kept my mouth shut. It did seem very, you know, chat. Okay, and did he show you the letter? He asked me to review the paragraphs about the apartment. That would have been a week or so later after he'd spoken to his family and sorted out the property. So your other colleagues knew by then? That's right. And did they react? I mean, like, did it change anything around the office? They weren't impressed. I was relieved, truth to be told. I certainly wasn't tempted to break his confidence. I didn't envy him the task of telling them, let alone want to be the messenger myself. But it's difficult carrying a secret of that magnitude for another person in a small office, much like a family. I am familiar with the dynamic to which you refer. Sorry, Dad. No, no. I didn't mean anything by that. There are circumstances where it may be necessary for a time, as it was here. Okay. But seeing as I'm cashing in the family tragedy for clicks here, do you mind if we take this little detour? Because you've been the secret keeper in our family quite a bit too. I don't know that it's appropriate to discuss Michael's... Oh, no, no, me either. I think that's Michael's choice, but we can talk about the times that you've held things for me. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, there have been a few things over the years. Okay. Well, the first one I remember, when I was still going through the interviews, do you remember what I used to say to you? I mean, I hope I'm not making this up. You'll have to be more specific. You've never been a child of few words. (laughs) Okay. So my memory... And I always thought this happened repeatedly, but it might just be that I've played it all over so much, is that it was just you and me, and I can picture this in three settings. In the car, probably on the way to one of the interviews, and or on the couch watching Disney, which I think that one is probably fake and just got in there because mom references something like that in the letter, and or in the hammock. And it's like, a bright sunny day and I'm sitting on your chest pretending to be a pirate ship or something. And then I just suddenly switch topics. Well, I don't think it would be the last one because the interviews all happened in the winter. Okay. So my hippocampus has been lawyered. Thank you, counselor. Okay. But then let's say the car. 
And what I remember saying to you was, Daddy, what if I made it up? Something like that. And do you remember this? Do you remember what you said to me? My recollection, if it's a true recollection of this incident or another, is that I said, well, sweetheart, then you just have to tell them that. We have to be honest. And if everybody tells the truth, then it'll all come out right in the end. That's right. I mean, that's, that's what I remember. And I remember asking, should I tell mommy? I don't remember this. What did I say? Or what do you remember me saying? I remember you saying that mommy would find out when they found out the truth. I might have. I can see why that would have stuck with you, given the circumstance. Did you believe me that time, or did you already believe that it must have happened? I believed in the process. I believed in good people doing their jobs well, as I was trying to be a good person doing my job well. Okay. Did you believe the charges of child abuse brought against your client and colleague, Chet Spring? At first? Sure. Let's start there. I'm a man of faith who for many years stood by a church that uh, made some rather astounding claims, I'll freely admit, that the living God was conceived by a virgin, that son of God went on to walk on water and ultimately exchanged his life for my sins. And each week I consumed his literal flesh and blood as wafer and wine magically transubstantiated. Some of these things I still believe, standing firmly outside that church now. And I have never had my understanding of what it means to believe something shaken so hard as it was that winter. You understand what I'm saying? It was easier to walk away from the religion I was born and raised to trust as the one true path than it was to understand what was going on in my own mind beginning on the day when Chet told me that his wife had accused him of molesting their youngest child. But did you have a gut feeling? Like guilty, not guilty? One gut feeling was that it was impossible, but that came from an irrational part of my guts, which still, despite working every day with him in a law office, would always see Chet as a child himself. Another gut feeling was that I should have known, but that was from the part of my guts that had been told nothing but horror stories about men like Chet from the time I was a child. And these two things pulled at each other inside of me, back and forth, tingling in knots. So the only honest answer is that my gut feeling was that I didn't know. And did you ever consider dropping the case? I mean, the first case. Had I known what I couldn't have known about where it was headed and who else would be involved, of course I would have. As it was, it was simply a slightly closer, somewhat less comfortable version of an ordinary occupational hazard I'd dealt with many times. Everybody needs a lawyer, Katrina. I've certainly had cases before where in the end I was glad to see the client lose custody. My belief in the courtroom is seldom that my client must be found blameless, but that my client must be heard. 
that the truth must be heard from all angles for justice to be served. And do you still believe it works like that? If you're asking me if I believe that justice was served in Spring Valley, I have had 30 years to think about that and still don't have an answer for you. From a strictly legal perspective, we are not guilty of long-term wrongdoings, such as were committed in San Antonio, in Oak Hill, in West Memphis. We put a number of people behind bars who it ultimately was determined did not need to be there, but we did not keep them there once that was proven to the satisfaction of the judge and jury. And is that not the function of the justice system? Almost like it might not be the best system. It is a self-correcting system and can be slow to correct. That's a matter of caution and of relying on precedent. But if you really look purely at the legal aspect not just in Spring Valley, but in many of these cases, particularly in Canada, justice was being sought with pure hearts on all sides. So you don't believe that Flora made a conscious decision to lie about Chet molesting their son? I've never felt that a lie was the right way to describe it, no. Okay, so you think that she's married to the man for 15 years, apparently knowing from the night they met that he's gay, chooses to pursue him romantically anyway, and accepts his proposal of marriage, has two children with him that she raises with him, apparently quite peacefully for 11 and four years respectively, until he leaves her a note that's like, sorry, too gay for this, moving out. And we know from the tapes and their daughter's diary that were submitted as evidence by the prosecution that Flora was saying homophobic things about him in front of the kids well before the alleged event she makes the first accusation about. And then the kids spend one weekend, barely 24 hours at Chet's apartment, and their son happens to wet the bed his first night back at his mom's house, and she immediately takes this as evidence of abuse, which she calls 911 about before she's even coerced him into saying anything. And you just look at that like, seems legit. I'm not defending her position, and obviously I was not then because I was quite literally defending the opposite position. And I'm not saying it's right, but Flora and I both are of a generation that was primed by every major institution that raised and nurtured us to believe exactly what she did believe. And with the knowledge I had at the time and having been primed the same way she was, would I be wrong to be concerned about the possible mistreatment of a child? Wouldn't that be the most important thing? Yeah, but... I don't think it was ever about the child. I mean, okay, having been one of the children it was supposed to be about, I think I have some perspective on this. Like, even when I might have sort of believed what I was saying, I knew that I was saying it for them because they told me I was saying it for them. It was about how we need you to tell us what happened so that we can put the bad people away. And they didn't want to listen if I said the bad people weren't bad. And who were the bad people? A gay dad, some underpaid teachers I'd never even met, and a single mom running a daycare. I'm losing track of your argument. 
I know. I'm okay. I don't want to argue about it. You were Chet's defense. You did a good job. You were on the right side of history as far as you were involved with the case. But I don't know. You, you were also my dad. And you were so involved in this process of grownups using kids to get back at other grownups that you couldn't do anything about them using me. Because it would be what? A conflict of interest? Like you believed me, right? When I said it wasn't true. I knew I didn't raise a liar. And did you know that the first time you and mom asked me if Annie Annie ever did anything scary at daycare and I said no? Of course, yes. But you also believed me three interviews in when I said Annie Annie made us take a bath in a cauldron in the backyard with a bunch of bones? I wasn't there for that interview. Your mother was. Yeah, but she didn't tell you? Like, she listened to me describe these cartoonishly evil things her sister was supposedly doing while you paid her to look after me at the house just down the block. And she didn't say one word about it when you went to bed at night. We went in with doubts. We came out the other side with more of them. I, I don't know what you want to hear from me. No, it's okay. I, I don't want you to say anything just because it's what I want to hear. Would you like to stop the recording? No, no, I, okay, thank you for doing this with me. I know I am making everything more complicated for everybody. Everybody was over it in their own way. And then I- No, no, sweetheart, I don't think we were. You're doing something difficult here, but it's necessary. You're finding the truth we couldn't find then. But I'm not, Dad. That's not what this is about. Well, you're seeking the truth. That's all you can do. And I'm proud of you. But Dad, that's, <laughs> that scares me so much. What does? Truth. Like, well, being, being the one responsible for it. Or for the version that the people who are listening to me are going to believe. Or at least, you know, it's implied that what I say is what I want them to believe, which I do. I mean, I started this because I know a lot of people have read a lot of things that I said that I don't believe anymore. And I want people to know if they've been carrying around this story that I don't think it happened like that anymore. But that kind of means I'm saying that now I do know what happened. And, you know, that's kind of a thing for me. Uncertainty. Well, if you think doing the podcast is harmful to your mental health, you shouldn't do it. There's no shame in that. No, I mean, I don't think it's... It is bringing up some stuff. For sure. And like, whatever I talk to my therapist about it, he agrees with me that it's like exposure therapy in a way, or it's what I've been doing all this exposure therapy for. So I can be exposed and be okay. Are you okay, sweetheart? I'm fine. Do you have any more questions for me? Do you think 
I'm making it sound like because nothing happened to me, nothing could have happened to any of the other kids. Is that what you think? <laughs> I don't, I don't think it matters what I think happened to anybody else, but I think things about it. I've read everything about it obsessively. And like when it happened, everybody had an opinion, right? Generally, yes. And e like even during the custody hearing. That was meant to be a simple family law case. There was nothing in the news yet. Yeah, but people were talking. Some people, sure. Okay, well, because the teacher's lounge tape is from that time, right? Or even a little before. So the teachers all knew about the separation and the accusations and everything. Yes, I suppose that's where the rumor mill starts. But on the tape anyway, it sounds like they're not so convinced. It's 30 years since I heard it, Trina. I couldn't say offhand. That's the whole point, right? That the teachers get pulled into this case because they're doubting Flora's accusations against Chet on the tape. Yes, I suppose that was the gist of it. Okay, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself uh, because I do want to do a more in-depth episode getting into the tape, but I bring it up because I was just thinking about the timeline for you. Like you're defending Chet in the custody case which he loses, mostly. Supervised access while they investigated the charges. So you kind of have to be on Chet's side, professionally at least, during that first hearing. So then I'm wondering if once you're like no longer representing Chet and it's becoming more of a public conversation, did you feel like there was pressure on you to make it known you'd flipped sides? Well... I wasn't putting out a press release. Okay, but mom basically did. <laughs> I suppose you could say that. So was that something you discussed before she published the letter? I mean, like, it's one thing she's implicating her own sister and blowing up our family, but by extension, she's publicly declaring that your colleague is guilty. Chet was no longer working for the firm at the time because he was in jail, but you were still working with his brothers and his dad. The family had come to an agreement to terminate Chet's partnership, regardless of the outcome of the trial. Wow. Chet was part of the agreement. The law was never his calling. Still, it sounds like nobody was on his side. In family business, you have to know how to separate family from business sometimes. They were still visiting Chet, some of them. Do you know who? His mother, every week. John Jr., a few times, I believe. What about Al? He may have. He didn't mention it to me. But you're best friends, right? He may have thought certain things needed to be unspoken to preserve the friendship especially once you were involved. And you're still friends today. We are. That's kind of remarkable. I mean, this case, everywhere I've looked, it's like a wrecking ball. 
nobody did hard time, but families broke up, people had to leave town, careers destroyed, but you and Al stayed buddies. And you stayed at Spring and Childers till the day you both retired, the same day you go on cruises together. He's always been the brother I never had. Do you think he made a conscious decision to sacrifice his relationship with the brother he did have? That's pure speculation, Trina. How much control do we have over such things as individuals, a family, a town? These are powerful tides. We are all small boats. Okay, you're right. That's not a fair question. I don't know if I have any fair questions left. Shall we adjourn? Yeah, I guess. Thanks, Dad. So... That was the clip. <laughs> uh, hang on. When I'm editing, do you want me to cut any of that? No. Okay. You think I should cut out the part where I freaked out? I don't think you freaked out. I think you got vulnerable in a way you didn't necessarily plan. And it's your show. So I want to make sure if we're putting something out, it's because you want it out there. But I always want everything out there. I'm just saying we have the power to edit, and if you want to do it, we can. Yeah, I I know you're professional and you work on real shows where the standard is more... Okay, well, there is a standard uh, to start with. And the interviewer asks questions and the subject answers them, and the interviewer doesn't go off track and start crying about their mental illness. But, okay, like you said, this is my show, and I know we just met each other again, but this is what I'm like. Okay. I get it. If it's not what you thought you were signing on for, you can bail. <laughs> not bailing, guys. Just figuring out what my job here is. I know the story's not... Okay, it's not coming out in this neat, linear way. I guess it's not really the project. Okay. What's the project? I... Okay. I wish... It was telling the story, you know, A to B to C, and this is what happened, and this is the truth, and this is who fucked up, and this is who got hurt, and this is where they are now, and this is what we need to do. And I've been trying to tell that story that way for years, and it doesn't work. It's not like that, because there's always doubt, or there's always some other detail that comes in when you're going over the same thing for the hundredth time and you can't, you can't go forward. You have to go back and figure out what that's about. And the people you want to hear from won't talk about it and they shouldn't have to talk about it. But I, I need to talk about it. I need, I need to make a record, a public record, and it's not going to be a clean record because it isn't a clean experience. Yeah. That makes sense. And maybe if people hear that we can talk about it now, maybe they can talk about it too. Like maybe we can find each other? Yeah, that'd be cool. It would be cool. It it would be wild. It'd be 
like, maybe kind of terrifying. Maybe these other kids are out there and they think I'm lying. So, if they're listening to the podcast, what do you want to say to them? Oh, um... Wow, okay. That... That I don't think they're lying. Definitely. Like, whatever they say happened, I don't think they're lying about it. Maybe something happened to them that didn't happen to me. Maybe not. Maybe maybe some of it did, and some of it didn't. I, I don't know the truth of their story, but I know the experience we have in common was the recovery room. And I know how they talked to us there. And if you told them something that wasn't true, it... It wasn't a lie, either. And if you still believe it, I don't know if it's true, but I wouldn't call you a liar. And I hope you wouldn't call me a liar. And I know it might be really hard, but I'd love to meet you again. And it doesn't have to be for the record. And we don't have to figure out what happened. Because that was never our job. We were little kids, and they put that on us, and I want to know if we can ever put it down. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Can I leave that in? You better. Cool. Uh, I love you. I love you, too. Is this a weird time to bring up my idea for a fun new show segment? Everything's weird. What is it? Okay, I was thinking about all this time that we miss knowing each other. And I was thinking maybe we can end every episode with a little lightning round catch-up Q&A. <laughs> what kind of cues? Whatever you want to ask, but I was thinking, like, light stuff, fun stuff. I guess I just saw you upstairs goofing around with Seven as she's, like, spinning around on her chair, making fun <laughs> of us for not seeing each other for 30 years, and I thought, I'll never know you at the age that she is now. And not I was thinking how... I used to think that about the kids as babies, because when I went Vicky, 10 was 6, and 7 was 3, hmm. and I used to really mourn those years that I didn't get to watch them grow, but I don't anymore, um, because we've been doing all the little petty business of family <laughs> together every day for four years, you know, um... Me and Vicky and the kids and their dad when he's around, grandparents, cousins, whatever. Yeah. They they slip into memory with each other so easy. And now some of the memories include me and lots of them are still before my time. But now I remember the rememberings. <laughs> um, and that kind of works. Hmm. Like that's all any of us has of these ephemeral things. Even the things we were there for. Like... Maybe family is just a couple people who've been telling each other the same weird little stories about themselves <laughs> for years. So I thought, um, I thought maybe we could do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could. Okay. Do you want to go first? Um, okay, you ask first. I'll answer first. Okay. Um, how did you decorate your binders in middle school? Huh. Um... Oh, scratch and sniff stickers on the outside. Like, just an absolute chemical hazard of artificial fruity smells. And then on the inside back cover, I would um, 
like, keep track of who everybody in the class was, quote, <laughs> like, going out with with their initials in whiteout pen. And then whenever they broke up, which was usually, like, later the same day, I would... I would chip it off with my fingernails, so there's always, like, this white out dust accumulating in the pencil group on my desk, <laughs> like that little lip, and I would actually get kind of sad. Like, I'd come into class on Monday, and the janitors had wiped down the desks, so it was gone. So, yeah, okay, f- fairly unhinged. Nice. <laughs> I can see it. I can yeah. see it. Um, yeah. Your turn. Okay, um, who was your best friend in Florida? Oh, um... I was kind of a loner, like, even more so than I was before. Um, mm. You know what, though? Uh, there was this old neighbor, Mr. Hirsch, and his kids <laughs> got him this, like, little puppy um, to keep him company or whatever, and he loved the puppy, but it was a pretty big energy mismatch, and um, <laughs> he sees me in the courtyard with my Walkman, and he comes over and he takes my headphones off. Okay, rude. Yeah, I think that was, like... I was the only person under 50 on the block. He really didn't know how to act. Anyway, okay. Um, he asks if I want to walk his dog for 50 cents, and then I did <laughs> twice a day for the entire time I lived there. Okay, so the puppy was your best friend. Yeah, I mean, I definitely sobbed the last time I Aww. took him around the block, and it wasn't like Mr. Hirsch and I were having these deep philosophical conversations. Never knew his first name. Uh... But he trusted me. Hmm. So that was big at that point. Mm. <sighs> Sorry, this was supposed to be light and not about the no. stuff that happened. No, it's okay. Okay, so let's do one more. Your turn. Uh, okay, what was your best Halloween costume? <laughs> uh, well, we... Okay, we, did, we didn't really do Halloween after. Oh, shh. Shit. Uh, duh. Yeah. Scratch that. No, it, I, I'm just giving context for why probably my best costume was like, I, I don't know, last year when my roommate and I decided to honor Robin Williams by answering the door as Mork and Mindy, I guess. Love it. Yeah. Uh, what about you? You probably had some cute kid costumes before I was even born. Honestly, I think you saw my best costume. Me and the boys, the murdered musicians. Oh. Hard to top that. Yeah, okay. Well, that's another can of worms. Um, I, I know, sorry. No, no, no. I, I guess we know what we're talking about next week. Guess we do. Believe Me Now is a fictional podcast written by me, Emmett Cameron. I also play Lou. Trina is played by Grace Poltrack, who you can find on Instagram at underscore pumpkin queen underscore no I. Roger is played by Brent McGuire. He didn't tell me anything to tell you, but you should know he's a really cool guy. He fixes bikes and stuff. We love him. Uh, My lovely patrons keep us in audio equipment and out-of-print books about devil worship, so shout out to Ben, Bill, Dawn, Janet, Molly, Aiden, Amber, Alicia, Hava, Erin, Emily, Katie, Rachel, Rosemary, Wake, Robin, Audrey, B, Keith, Mare, Peter, and Emma, 
and welcome to Alana, who just joined, and I hope I pronounced your name right. Patrons also get some neat bonus content, like the full text of documents that get mentioned on the show, like the infamous letter, uh, or my unhinged analysis of actual Satanic Panic source texts. Plus, you will have access to a bunch of other art junk I've made, like coloring sheets and poetry and an illustrated novelette and a calendar coming up for the new year. So just look for Emmett L.F. Cameron on Patreon if you want in on that. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Believe Me Now Pod. Talk to us there if you want to say something short. If you want to say something longer, our email is believemenowpod at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Keep raising hell.